Well, I don't know if you've uh, driven around lately in the hills with the uh, rains the last couple of weeks. There was plenty of water around a little while ago, wasn't there? It's been nice to have some sunshine recently. Um, as we've driven from home through to Handorf and uh, down to the freeway lately, we've seen quite a peculiar sight on the side of the road. Stuck in between the rails of a fence there above the creek line, uh, obviously it wasn't above the creek line at one time, there's actually a bathtub sitting in the fence, a whole bathtub stuck there in the fence. Obviously it's been washed downstream, uh, probably a, a, um, a water trough for, for some animals or something. A fiberglass bathtub, probably not a cast iron one. I don't know what those animals have been drinking out of since then, though, because um, it's not where it should be. I also know that a cafe down that area, they used to have a play area at the back, um, a bit of a sand pit, which is now just a pile of mud, and they actually lost an entire jungle gym um, during that flood. It's now in someone's backyard downstream. That's what happens when things are not tied down. That's what happens when they're not stable and secure and built on a good foundation, isn't it? That's just good, solid engineering principle, isn't it, Jerry? <laughs> and you should over-engineer always, don't you? But if there's not a good foundation, I won't go any more into engineering, um, I'll show my ignorance. But if there's not a good foundation, it's going to wash away, isn't it? When the floods come, the rains come, and the wind blows. Jesus uses what's just good common sense and building principles uh, to make his point here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And his main point is not for builders, it's not for engineers, it's for everyone. Everyone who's willing to hear, everyone who wants to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the point he's making at the very end here is this. Hearing everything that he said up to this point reading these three chapters of God's word or sitting under the preaching of this word for the past 14 weeks here is not enough. To think that that's enough, just hearing this word, listening to all of this, Jesus says is foolish. If any of us here think that simply sitting here under the preaching of the word is enough and that that's going to keep you secure your life, your faith, your salvation, Jesus is telling us this morning, think again. Because if that's what you think, he says, you're a fool. You're like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. If your life is built around your faith and your hope for salvation is built simply around having a Bible on your bedstand at night, or coming to church and hearing a sermon every week. It's foolishness, because in the end it will all come crashing down. It will not stand or survive the wind, the rain and the floods, the troubles of life, as Bob said, the suffering and the storms that come our way. It will not secure us in death, and it will not cause us to stand on the last day when we meet the king of the kingdom. Now Jesus is saying this and I'm saying this not to make us feel foolish or put us under a weight of pressure or to mock us. He's saying it in order to warn us. He's saying it, what he says he puts before us actually is the way of life. And he wants us to choose that way, not any other way. He doesn't want us to be foolish. He wants us to be like the wise man. 
It may not be the easiest way, we've heard that already, but it's the only way that leads to life. If you've got your Bibles open to Matthew 7, since verse 12, the golden rule that we heard last week, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's almost like a bookend within the the bookends of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember back in chapter 5, he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't. I've come to fulfill them. And now he's just summed them up. Do unto others as you would them do to you. But since that point, Jesus has been warning us time and again. Enter by the narrow gate. That's the way that leads to life. For the gate is wide and the way is easy. That one leads to destruction. It's a warning. Verse 15, beware of the false prophets. Wolves in sheep's clothing, they won't lead you to life. And now this morning, two warnings again. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Only the one who does the will of my Father. Therefore, verse 24, as Scott's version had, or mine has, everyone then, there's one of those connecting words again that we saw a couple of weeks ago. It's all connected. Only those who do the will of my Father, that is, who hear my words and do them, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the way of life. Not just hearing these words of Jesus, but doing them. It's the way of life, and it's the way to life, the obedience of faith. Wisdom is shown in what the wise builder does. Life in the kingdom of heaven is seen as we build on the foundation, on the rock. And whilst we know, and probably most of us have said, oh yeah, I know, Christ is that rock, build the foundation on Christ. He's the cornerstone. And that's elsewhere in Scripture, absolutely. And that is ultimately where this leads to. But it's not primarily what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, build on me. What is he saying? He's saying, hear these words of mine and do them. That's the wisdom of the wise builder, the one who does these words of his. And that is the only difference between the two houses and the two builders. Did you notice that? They've gone down to the same hardware store and got the same materials. They've built the same kind of house. Neither one nor the other inferior to the other as far as its skill and expertise in the way it's being built. These builders may even go to the same church. They may even hear the same preaching week by week. They might be sitting next to each other in our pews. But only one of them builds upon a foundation of rock. The other on sand. And what's the difference? One of them hears these words and does them. The other one just hears. One house stands, the other falls. And we really only know which one when they're tested, don't we? When the winds and the floods and the rain come. And so we may well ask of Jesus here, which am I? Am I a wise builder or a foolish one? I come week by week, I've heard these words. Is my house going to stand? And as much, if you know me at all, hopefully you do, as much as I like to emphasise and encourage us in the assurance that we have in Christ, in the grace of God, our life, our salvation, it's all in Christ. 
It's not wrong for us, is it, to stop for a moment and examine ourselves and our lives and ask the Lord to search our hearts. When Jesus told his disciples that night, the Last Supper, he said, one of you at this table is going to betray me. What did they all say? Is it me? They said that to themselves, and then they each said to Jesus, one after the other, is it me, Lord? They didn't know. And so I think there's a rightness to that question, even in the assurance we have in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. There's a rightness to that question, because we should never presume, should we, that it could never be us. In fact, I think it would be far worse to say that it would never be me. Peter said that, didn't he? I will never turn away. I will even die for you. And Jesus says, well, you've still got a little bit to learn yet, Peter. You've got to rely on me, not on yourself. Whilst it was only Judas that Jesus was referring to, each of them asked, and that night we're told each of them did fall away. Jesus said they all would on account of him, and they did. And so a little self-examination is not out of place here, a little check and reminder of where it is that our assurance lies in ourselves or in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones reminds us, referring to this, he says there is a a self-deception and a self-delusion built into the sinful flesh. A self-deception and self-delusion which tends to rely upon false evidences of faith. Going to hear about some of them in a moment. False evidences of faith and salvation rather than true ones, rather than Christ and his word and the fruit that's born out of the gospel and the spirit of God. And so perhaps after asking, is this me, which am I, the wise or foolish builder, (laughs) what we need to be asking is, what does it mean for us to hear the words of Jesus and do them? As I shared with the fellows out back, it's so easy to hear these words here and say, is Jesus speaking about a gospel of works? Are we saved by our doing? Is that what Ray's preaching this morning? Well, it's not. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. Surely Jesus can't be implying that because that undoes everything else he does and says and actually goes on to do at the cross. That's not the gospel. It's not the grace of Christ. It's not what happened at the cross. Nor is Jesus saying anything here contrary to the doctrine of election, that he's not saying we choose our salvation. But he is warning us here. He's already told us a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Our salvation and each of us, wise or foolish, we're not determined by our fruits. We're not determined. Our salvation is not determined by our fruit. We're recognised by our fruit very different so what does jesus mean here what does it mean for us to build upon the rock and not fall in the storms that we might still be standing on the last day because it does have to do obviously with hearing these words of mine jesus says and doing them and from our passage this morning if we just step back a little bit to verse 21 we know straight away what it doesn't mean Doing the words of Jesus here is not doing all the whiz-bang stuff, miraculous and mighty works in the name of Jesus. They may well be some of those false evidences that Martin Lloyd-Jones referred to. That's not the will of God or doing these things that Jesus is speaking about, at least not those things alone. 
Jesus says you could do all those things. You can prophesy, you can speak the word of God, you can cast out demons, you can do other mighty works all in the name of Jesus. And Jesus could still say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness, you evildoers. How would you be? Working your whole life, professing the name of Jesus, Lord, Lord, doing mighty works in his name, only to hear on the last day from the judge of all the earth, who are you? I never knew you. This should make us stop and think. has made me stop and think this week. One thing I've been hearing on the radio the past few weeks, tens of thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands of people, have been online desperately trying to get tickets to a certain pop star concert. Anyone got Taylor Swift tickets? Don't, 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 don't. I heard on the radio that two million people have missed out. Now, I think that's a bit of an exaggeration. I guess. Maybe not. But do you know, for all their passion, for all their zeal, all their time spent online clicking and swiping and lining up for tickets and willing to spend their life savings, they might even have merchandise at home and, you know, Taylor Swift T-shirts and they'll go to the concert and call out a name and call themselves Swifties or whatever else they might be. But despite all of that, do you know what? Taylor doesn't know one of them. Not one of them. Some of them might get to go backstage, special pass, VIP. They'll get to meet her maybe, have a little chat. And then they'll go home and she'll go to her next concert and meet some other VIPs. And she probably won't remember any of them. No offence to Taylor. That's just how it is. Friends, we don't want to miss out on this ticket, do we? None of us want to hear Jesus say to us, depart from me. I never knew you. James tells us, doesn't he? Even the demons believe there is God, one God. They shudder at the thought of it. It doesn't save them. Pharaoh's magicians back in Egypt, they could do all the magical works that Moses could do by the power of God with his staff, turning into a snake and all the plagues, all but one, I think. They had trouble with the gnats. They could do it all. didn't save them. Sons of Sceva in Ephesus exercising demons, doing all manner of spiritual wonders. But not even the evil spirits recognise them like they did Jesus and Paul. You can speak the word of God, you can speak even in tongues of angels, have faith to move mountains, but if you have not love, you're nothing. You gain nothing. So what's the difference between us doing all this stuff and being known by Jesus? To say that we know Jesus is very different to him knowing us. In Galatians, Paul speaks to the believers there. They've been saved by grace through faith, but now they're starting to head towards leaning on their own works for salvation. You've started in Christ and now you're starting to go in yourself. He says, what are you doing? He says, now that you've come to know God, and then he sort of corrects himself or draws their attention away from themselves, or rather be known by God. 
In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, If anyone loves God, he is known by God. There's a difference. All these mighty works you're doing, even prophesying in his name, what are you doing it for? For your love for God? Or you're trying to get the love of man? Which Jesus has already warned us about, hasn't he? Don't practice all this stuff, this righteousness in front of others to get their love and their approval. And Jesus says in John 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You'll both hear what I say and you'll do what I say. So no, hearing the words of Jesus and doing them, doing the will of the Father, does not equate to super spiritual whiz-bang stuff. Exciting stuff that might draw a crowd. Casting out demons, doing might definitely draws a crowd, doesn't it? But Jesus has also warned earlier, there's a path that's wide and many will take that path. The way the big crowds are going is not necessarily the right way. It's not the way of life. Some of these things, they're not bad within themselves. Nothing wrong with prophesying in Jesus' name. Nothing wrong with casting out demons, doing mighty works. They all could be good, godly, spiritual things. But as Jesus has warned us already, their fruit will find them out. And if, as I wonder if they are, this is all linked together back with verse 15, beware of the false prophets. They come in sheep's clothing. You won't recognise them straight away. You won't just be able to look at them and say, ah, there's, a, there's one who, who the Lord won't know. No, they are ravenous wolves. Their deeds will find them out. The fruit will find them out. A ravenous wolf cannot hide its hunger forever, can it? doesn't matter how well it dresses us up in sheep's wool. They're not there to feed the flock. They are there to feed on the flock. They're bad eggs, or rather bad trees, and therefore their fruit is bad. They may well do mighty works, but do they love the Lord and do they keep his commandments? Are they faithful in the ordinary, everyday things of the gospel? Or do they just like drawing the crowd and getting all the attention? Will they stand in the times of trial when the wind and the rain and the floods come? Do they do the will of our Father in heaven? And do they do these words of Jesus? This foundation that Jesus is speaking of here in the Sermon on the Mount, this rock on which we are to build, it's not necessarily that you've got to dig deep, although I think the illustration is telling us that. But there's at least one person in Scripture I can think who didn't have to dig deep at all. Think of Noah. Wind came, the rains came and the flood came. But Noah was saved. How was he saved? He heard the word of God and he did what he was told. Genesis 6, the flood narrative of the beginning of it ends with this. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. If Noah sat there that day and said, Oh Lord, thank you for telling me there's a flood coming. Thank you for telling me I should build an ark. I'll get around to that eventually. But he never did it. Where would we be? That alone, hearing God's word, would not save him. 
But as we read in Hebrews 11, it was by faith in reverent fear that Noah constructed an ark. The faith that is both the hearing and the doing of God's word. That's what genuine faith actually is. It's hearing God's word and doing it. The obedience of faith. What did that mean for Noah? Well, it actually meant chopping up trees and probably getting a few splinters and putting them back together to make an ark. It was really earthy and practical. Doing God's word. It's why James tells us, isn't it? Faith without works is dead. You know, so often we put James and Paul up against each other and say, are they saying different things? And we try to work. I think we should put James and Jesus up together here on the Sermon on the Mount and actually realize how much they're saying that is so similar. The person who says Lord, Lord and truly means it actually recognizes that Jesus is Lord. And if he's Lord, then we submit to him and we do what he says because he is Lord. And because he's the one who gives life and brings life to us. Why wouldn't we want to respond to the one who can rescue us from death and sin? I've been asked recently, more than once in fact in the past few months, about what I think about the signs of the times. All that's happening in the world, there's earthquakes, there's wars and rumours of wars, artificial intelligence going to take over the world. We can see it and hear it so much in life, can't we, today? Does that mean Jesus is coming soon? I think it does. Church has been saying that for a long, long time, though, haven't they? Could be tomorrow, could be today. Might be another thousand years. We actually don't know. The church has been crying out since Jesus ascended to heaven that he will come again. He will come to judge the living and the dead. We're also told that God is patient, not slow, but he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish. Later in Matthew, we're going to hear when we get to it, how when Jesus comes, he will come like a thief in the night. Now that doesn't mean he's going to come and steal things from out from under your nose. It means you're not going to know when he comes. There's not going to be any warning. You know when he does come, but you won't know beforehand. Jesus himself said that he doesn't know when he's going to return. Only the Father knows that. There's a mystery there, isn't there? There's something wonderful about how the Godhead works in faithful love and submission. Father, Son and Spirit. But am I concerned with the signs of the times that we hear so much and see? Do they signal that the end is near? Well, Jesus said all these things would happen, but he said they must happen, but the end is not yet. Now we'll see more about those statements when we get to it in Matthew. But should it worry us today? Should it concern us? Concerns me for the lost? Yes, absolutely. Does it concern me? No. Why not? Because without being presumptuous, I've already warned us against that, but without being presumptuous, I can be assured in Christ that I am prepared for that day. We can be prepared for that day. Like Noah, who had heard God's word and done all that he commanded him to do, when the rain fell and the wind came up and the floods came, he didn't have to fear, did he? He had a place to go. He had a refuge. The writer of Hebrews talks about an anchor, but it's not deep down in the sea. It's an anchor in heaven, in Christ. 
Noah didn't fear because he had heard and done what God had said to him, like the wise man who built his house on the rock, who hears God's word and does it. We too need not be afraid as we hear God's word and do what he says. Jesus again later on says, stay awake, be prepared, be ready. How are we ready? Well, what he's telling us here is to hear these words of his and do them. Which means what? Well, just look back over the last few pages. It means loving your neighbours, loving your enemies. It means not committing murder or adultery in your heart. It means not doing things to get the approval of man, but to please God because of you love him. It means seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness, trusting God to provide your every need. It means forgiving others as we've been forgiven. It means having a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And it means you, therefore, Jesus said, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How can we do that? We've asked that question before in this series, haven't we? Jesus is saying here, you can't just hear these words and say you're secure in that, where to do them. But Lord, I don't know if I can do all of this. I know I haven't done all of this. How can I do this? Where does the strength, the energy, the love, the forgiveness and the mercy come from for me to do this? Because in myself, of yourself, we can't, can we? And so we need to go back to the beginning. And we need to recognise that we are poor, that we are poor in spirit, that we have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, but we do not have a righteousness of our own. But the good news is if that's what we are, if we recognise that's where we are, then Jesus tells us that we're in a place of blessing. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they will be satisfied. Theirs is the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. But I think we even need to go back a little bit further still. See, this is one of Jesus' longer sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 17, one of his shortest sermons ever. I think we need to hear this word of Christ's and do this. Chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus begins to preach. From that time, Jesus began to preach. What did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the first thing we're to do. To hear what Jesus says and do it. Repent, that is, turn away from sin, turn away from our love of ourselves, our self-dependence, thinking that we can do it all and we can get there, we can make it to heaven or wherever we want to get to. No, we don't have it within ourselves. Turn to him in repentance and faith. Change your mind. Don't let the world, like Bob was saying, shut your ears to the voices of the world and the word of the world. Don't do that. 
That's the way of death and destruction. Hear the words of Jesus. Repent and believe. And you know what? You'll receive a new heart, a new spirit, the forgiveness of sins, and you'll be filled with the Spirit of God. And as that takes place, as we hear that gospel call and respond in the obedience of faith, do you know what you'll find yourself doing? You will actually find yourself walking in obedience to your Lord because of the new heart he's given you, because of the grace and forgiveness you've received. Because as we, as Paul tells us, work out our salvation in fear and trembling, guess what? It's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So yes, we are to hear and do the words of Jesus. But as we do that, it's the very word of Christ, like the man who with a withered arm. Remember that? And Jesus says, stretch out your hand. How can he do that? How can Lazarus rise himself, raise himself from the dead? He's got no power within himself to do any of it. But in the very word that comes to us from Christ comes the power to obey that word by the grace of God, if we hear with ears of faith, with a heart of faith. And empowered by the grace of God, then we will actually find ourselves both doing and delighting in the will of God. We ourselves will actually bear fruit by the grace of God, fruit that's in keeping with repentance. Just as the the false teachers, those wolves in sheep's clothing, they're recognised by their fruit, so too the children of God are recognised by their fruit. That's what our obedience is. It's the fruit of God's grace in our life. It's not our earning our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It's the fruit. Don Carson says this, because I even sense as I've been preaching this morning, this sounds like a heavy word, Ray, (laughs) with all this hearing and all this doing we've got to do. That's not what it is. It's Jesus' words, not mine. Don Carson says, The Sermon on the Mount reflects no malicious glee at the prospect of perdition, that is, eternal punishment of hell. There's no cheer here at consigning so many to destruction. This is a warning. This is, in fact, an entreaty, an appeal to us. Choose life. May God grant his people a spirit of contrition, Carson says, which petitions him for grace and forgiveness by Jesus Christ and a growing conformity to the norms and perspectives of the kingdom. Friends, if, like me, you hear this word and you say, that sounds like a hard word, and that question, is it me? Have I been a wise builder or a foolish builder? then hear the word of God. He will not crush the bruised reed. He will not quench, he will not snuff out even the dimmest of burning wicks. He will not turn away any who come to him in faith. And so as we heard a couple of weeks ago, ask and it will be given. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened. Because what the Sermon on the Mount does and what Jesus has been doing and I trust has been doing for us these past 14 weeks 
is turning our eyes away from ourselves and onto Christ. Because he actually is the wise builder, isn't he? He's the only one who's heard the words of God and done the will of God completely. And later on in Matthew, when Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, what does Jesus say to him? You're right, Peter, and only God the Father has revealed that to you. And on this rock, on your confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the house that stands, the house that Christ builds. And we as his children, his church, we stand as we're united together in Christ by grace through faith. A faith which is active, a faith which is living, a faith which hears God's word and does it. I've said in a few times during this series that um, there's a number of parallels here with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and Moses with the people of God in the Old Testament. We didn't have it read to us, but at the very end, we should have, it was my fault, I didn't include it in the readings. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. He wasn't just reeling off what other rabbis had said and tweaking it and trying to have some debate and discussion. He was declaring the truth of God, speaking the truth in love. And on a different mountain, centuries early, in a different time, Moses stood before all the people of God and he said this, I call heaven and earth, or God's saying to them actually, through Moses, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. Choose life that you and your offspring may live. What does it mean to choose life? Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life. You get swept out to sea. Someone throws you a buoy to help you float. Hold on to that. There's your salvation. I've heard that. That's good. (laughs) I'll just watch. No, you grab onto it, don't you? Hold fast to him because he is your life. I think Jesus is saying the same here. I've put before you blessing and curse. There's a hard road. There's an easy path. There's one that leads to life. There's one that leads to death. Watch out for those who want to get you and take you down this path. Hear my words and choose life. Why would we choose any other way? Well, the world, the flesh and the devil, they would suggest there's plenty of reasons. A lot more fun down this path, a lot more people, a lot more excitement. But where does it end? Destruction and death. Only this way, the way of Christ, the way of the kingdom and its king leads to life. As Peter said to Jesus one day, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else shall we go? That's the heart of Christ here. That's my heart for us here too. Choose life. Hear the words of Christ and do them 
in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word, as Bob was sharing with the children, you've spoken to us through the prophets, and in these last days you've spoken to us through your own dear son. Merciful God, you are our maker and our judge, and we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed. We have not believed you. We have not loved you. We have not loved one another. We haven't obeyed your word. There are times when we have heard it and have not done it. Father, we repent of our sin. In your mercy, would you forgive us? And would you strengthen us as your children in our hearts, minds and souls to do your will, to read and hear these words of our Lord and to put them into practice, not to earn your approval, not to earn our salvation, but because you have called us and loved us in your Son because you've shown us the way to life. Lord, we don't want to ever reach that last day and hear those terrifying words, I never knew you. Depart from me. The psalmist cries out, you know us completely, Lord. And so keep us, Father, from trying to hide parts of ourselves from you that you would not know us all. And by your spirit, Lord, by your grace, would you so work in each of us that we might abide in Christ and bear good fruit, fruit that remains, and fruit which demonstrates that we are your children. A love so bold, so contrary to the ways of the world, the flesh and the devil, that others would see that we are your kingdom children and that they would give you glory because of it. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.